Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Nathan Amin and the House of Bofunks. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Today, however, we're not reviewing consort, but are interviewing the historian Nathan Owen, in particular on his book on the Beaufort family, uh, and a little bit on the uh, early Tudors to satiate uh, Ali's curiosity about Jasper Tudor. Yeah, finally we had someone who, who could, uh, well, he knew all of the stuff, didn't he? He will know, I'm sure, when we speak to him. Oh, gosh. And we're going to speak to him right now okay so we are very excited to be joined on the podcast today by the historian nathan amen nathan thank you very much for joining us uh on rex factor no problems thank you um long time fan very excited to be here <laughs> uh now people as a warning for people at some point ali may chaotically and in a crazy jumble join the podcast as people won't be surprised to know that things have gone wrong and ali hasn't quite managed to <laughs> lock in yet so at some point, Ali will soon be joining us. Um, first of all, Nathan, would you mind just um, explaining to uh, the listeners uh, who you are and uh, what you do? Yeah, uh, I'm a historian and author, originally from uh, West Wales, the the birthplace and home of the Tudors. Um, and I essentially write with a with a deep focus on the Wars of the Roses and the very first Tudor king, Henry the Seventh. Henry VII, as anyone who follows me will know by now, I do like to keep on hammering home the point. He was a Welshman. He was uh, a Welsh king of England. And that is a fact that has often been lost. So hopefully I am doing some work in bringing that fact back to the fore, uh, whilst also focusing on uh, the Beaufort family during the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, and it's particularly the Beauforts that we'd um, like to speak to you today. Although I guess a quick question I'll ask is that, as you said, just a long-time listener of uh, Rex Factor, the after Edgar the Peaceable, the main person that we get messages about as someone that people think should have got the Rex Factor and didn't is Henry VII. Do you think we missed a trick there in not giving Henry VII the Rex Factor? Absolutely. It, <laughs> it, it was such an obvious. It was such an obvious victor of that. Uh, of that competition. Um, definitely England's most uh, underrated king, for sure. Um, by far the most surprising, I guess, when you consider where where he came from and his route to the throne. Um, certainly England's greatest king, in my humble, very unbiased opinion. <laughs> it's well, because we talk about if one day maybe going back and doing the English monarchs again, because we've are both our sound quality, but also my research is that much more in depth. And I think Henry's definitely one of those where I, I think, particularly looking at them again with the consort series now, thinking, yeah, it does on paper seem hard to think why he wouldn't get it when, you know, wins the throne in conquest, wins other battles, restores the country, rich, etc. It's all quite, it's all quite impressive. It, it, it's an incredible tale. <laughs> I keep on, again, trying to hammer home the point that if I had any influence in Hollywood or in TV, you know, you can't find a more fascinating, captivating story than the rise of Henry VII. Uh, he's often been, you know, criticised that he gets a, a bad press for being this 
boring miser king. Um, I think it's unfortunate that his reign got, it, it falls between Richard III and Henry VIII, you know, these mm. two absolute powerhouses of English history. But Henry's reign has as much, if not more, drama in it than anyone else of, of the period. You know, we've got... Let's just look at how he got to the throne in the first place. You know, this is somebody who was born in West Wales. He was chased out of the kingdom at 14 years old. He lived in exile. He then came back, invaded, conquered um, the country, killed the king, married the princess, <laughs> established a thriving dynasty. Then he had to face a couple of pretenders, um, you know, all the while trying to reestablish um, England's continental reputation, you know, having to replenish the royal treasury and so on. It's an incredible reign that could, you know, where is Netflix? Why are Netflix not up in my email <laughs> box trying to put together uh, a nice 10-part series? It's really frustrating on on some levels that it's taken Henry so long to get his, to get his due. Um, before 2010, I think there were three books written about him in the previous 100 years, um, all academic texts. There's, you know, he's very much an overlooked and underappreciated king. We finally get this movement, of which I'm proud to have played a part, in bringing the real Henry to the fore, you know, really giving him his, his moment in the sun. And then we do get we do get this historical fiction version of Henry that's mm. starting to muddy the waters all over again. Um, so it, it, it is quite frustrating in some respects, but um, I guess that's all part and parcel of the modern world. Hey. <laughs> Sorry, I'm now on a Chromebook. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Nathan. Hi, are you okay? Uh, yeah, apologies. So you've joined at a good moment because we just had uh, some introductory chat about uh, Henry VII. Oh, yeah. But I'm now going to swerve and uh, segue into the thing which we are going to talk about, and thus you will be <laughs> reminded of what we're talking about. Um, so... Henry VII uh, isn't the subject for us today. We're focusing on uh, the Beaufort family, which is ultimately uh, Henry VII's route to the throne. So I think for a lot of people, maybe they'll, they'll think of Mar Margaret Beaufort or they'll remember something in the Wars of the Roses, quite a few Dukes of Somerset. Who are the Beaufort family and where do they come from? Ooh, very, very uh, complex question <laughs> to start off with. Um, I'll, I'll try and simplify it as best as I can. At the back end of the 14th century, we have one of the most powerful figures in the European, uh, you know, royal circles, John of Gaunt, uh, the Duke of Lancaster, is his foremost title, but he was also Earl of Lincoln, Earl of Derby, uh, Earl of Everywhere, it seemed. <laughs> A rich, powerful figure, the son of Edward III, Um and he seemed to have been a bit of a naughty boy. He has a, an extramarital affair with a lady uh, who was in charge of his nursery called Catherine Swinford. Um, Catherine Swinford was, you know, a humble knight's daughter from the Low Countries. But it is this affair between this mighty Plantagenet prince and this, um, you know, this governess that yields four children born out of wedlock. Um, those are four children born during the 1370s, and they are raised by Catherine Swinford in Lincolnshire. Um, they, are, they are 
essentially given the name Beaufort by by their father, John of Gaunt. Um, you know, he couldn't really go go along and call them uh, his, you know, uh, name them after his own title of Lancaster. He had to give them a name, and the name he bestowed upon him was Beaufort. So effectively, their origins are as the illegitimate offspring of a duke and his mistress. Um, quite scandalous origins, really. Um, but it does give rise to one of the most powerful families in the following century. And in terms of that illegitimacy, because that's one of the things, which going back to Henry VII, I suppose, it is often sort of pointed at him saying, you know, he's he barely even has a claim to the throne. It's sort of, you know, via female line and illegitimate line. But John of Gaunt does go on to marry Catherine Swinford. So what actually is the status of the Beaufort children and the Beaufort line? Um, yes, yeah, so, so you're right. So, so what happens... Uh, 20, 23 years after the birth of the first Beaufort child, uh, John of Gaunt controversially marries Catherine Swinford. He takes his ex-mistress as his third wife. And this was a remarkable uh, a remarkable event that occurred. And he did draw some scathing criticism from, you know, you know, contemporaries of the time. I think one chronicler said that this union between John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford caused much astonishment in France and England as she was of humble birth and she had a very small fortune, um, which seems a silly criticism, really, when John of God was one of the richest men in the world at the time. Um, but that, that was the, the, the criticism levelled at him. But by marrying Catherine Swinford, he was able to bestow retrospective legitimacy on his children. Um and you have to do that back then through the two different, you know, legal systems of the day, the church and parliament. So what John of Gaunt does is, first of all, he does go to the papacy, to the Pope, and he appeals for the church to issue retrospective legitimacy on them. Um, we still have that record in, in Rome. Uh, it does state that by marrying... Uh, Catherine Swinford, he is able to make his offspring, past and present, declared legitimate. Um, so the, the, the church are happy with that. Three months later, Parliament in England now bestow legitimacy upon the Beaufort children. Um, it, it is said, it, a charter is read out in Parliament where it says that the Beaufort children as they are begotten of royal blood and by the divine gift are adorned with many virtues, they will now forthwith be able to receive, retain, bear and exercise the same uh, rights as freely and lawfully as if they were born in lawful matrimony. So basically, John of Gaunt has effectively married his wife. He's gone to the Pope, he's gone to the King and they've both gone, yes, the Beauforts are now fully legitimate members of the English royal family. You know, nobody in England could invalidate, contradict or, you know, dispute the judgment of Pope and Parliament. Um, so far, so good. You know, we're in 1397, the Beauforts are now full, fully fledged members of the English royal family. The problem occurs 10 years later. So the eldest Beaufort, John Beaufort, 
he has now requested his legitimacy be reconfirmed by Parliament. Now, the reason he's probably done this is that in the intervening period, there's been a change on the English throne. His elder half-brother has now usurped the throne of England to become Henry IV, the first Lancastrian king. That's John Beaufort's eldest half-brother. So it's quite straightforward. You know, there's been a change on the throne. Let's just make sure everything is hunky-dory. And it is. Everything's everything's um, fine. Yes, the Beauforts are legitimate. Let's crack on with ruling the country. Now, what's happened is, at some point way down the line, and we don't actually know when, somebody has unfurled the parliamentary role. And they found three words scribbled on it. And those three words say, uh, acceptat dignitat regali. And that means accept to the royal dignity. So somebody has scribbled in these words on the original parliamentary role to change the meaning of the phraseology. So it now effectively reads, the Beauforts can attain any office in the land except to the royal dignity. And this has led people to this very day, to to claim that the Beauforts were barred from the throne. You know, they, they could become earls, they could become dukes, whatever. They could not become the king. Um, if you're me and you're very active on social media, you're going to get someone say this to you almost on a daily basis. <laughs> Those Beauforts, they couldn't become kings. It's, it was wrong. So many historians write about this. They just go, they go along with that prevailing... Um, opinion that the Beauforts are barred. However, when you look at the original Parliamentary Act of 1397, that act went through Parliament. Parliament said, this act is legal. Whoever scribbled those three words on, and whenever they did it, that never went back through Parliament. So nothing ever changed from the original Act of Parliament. The original Act was always legally upheld and it was never legally changed. In effect, whoever's written these three words, they've done little more than a bit of medieval graffiti. Um, <laughs> now, I've looked at the original parliamentary role and when you see a picture of it, it it's clear as day. Someone's just scribbled it in. But of course, when it was transcribed into book form, in the 1800s, mm. when you read these cold, hard words on a piece of paper, it looks, you know, of course, they were except to the royal dignity. It's there in black and white. Books cannot show you what the original parliamentary rule looked like. It was scribbled in. It never went through parliament. Nobody made a fuss about this at the time. Uh, eight years later when Henry Tudor was coming to claim the English throne, surely the first thing Richard III would have done is gone to the parliamentary roll, unfurled it and gone, look, everybody, it says right here, he's barred. Richard III never did that. No one else did that at the time. You know, the first we've heard about this is hundreds of years later when, you know, our 16th and 17th century um, forebears as historians were starting to go through the parliamentary rules themselves. One final thing on this point. If the Tudors, or 
you know, through the Beaufort line were barred from the English throne because this is what this Parliamentary Act apparently said. How come in 1450, so this is 35 years before Henry Tudor became king, how come people were putting forward the Beaufort claim in the person of Margaret Beaufort? What I mean by that is the Duke of Suffolk was executed in 1450. Uh, he was the, the chap who had his head you know, cut off on a boat just before the start of the Wars of the Roses. One of the main crimes that he was accused of was marrying his young son to the then seven-year-old Margaret Beaufort with the plan to use her Beaufort blood to put his son on the English throne. It's almost certainly nonsense, but that's what he was accused of in Parliament. Well, surely somebody would have pointed out that the Beauforts were barred from the throne. Again, no one ever pointed this out. This idea that the Beauforts were barred is very much quite a modern idea, and it stems from just a, a misreading of history. The Beauforts were never barred. There's no evidence of this. So where does that come from? Because I'd sort of, when reading about it, sort of maybe assumed that it was a like a Henry the Fourth thing, but it doesn't actually kind of legally pass. But if it's not even, but if it's someone does it later, but it's not even Richard, I guess if he doesn't use it, then who? Why? Why has someone put that there? Do you think? I would love to be someone of such influence and uh, wealth that I could just go and have this all independently, you know, examined and so on. Mm. Uh, alas, I'm not at that point yet. <laughs> Fingers crossed one day, maybe I will have such power. <laughs> I have a hunch, and my hunch is that around the time that John Beaufort re-requested re his legitimacy, the Beauforts were actually in a bit of a in a bit of a beef with the then Chancellor, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury. As Chancellor, it was he who was in charge of all of the parliamentary roles, in charge of all of the Chancery documents. It wouldn't surprise me if he himself has had a clerk write those words down with the intention to use it against the Beauforts at some later point. And what well, perhaps forgotten about it. You know, perhaps it was never needed, and it's just gone back into the back in the chancery, popped into one of the into one of the shelves, and forgotten about for hundreds of years. One important thing is that in 1406-1407, when John Beaufort re-requested his legitimacy, there was no hope in hell of the Beauforts ever having any chance of reaching the English throne. Thus, there was no need to bar them. What I mean by this is Henry IV at this time, he had four sons of his own. Uh, and, you know, surely it would have been expected that of those four sons, they would have had multiple sons themselves. No one could have foreseen that fast forward 50 years and of those four sons, there is only one male living and that would have been Henry VI. So th there's no need to bar the Beauforts. No one's ever mentioned it. No one's ever brought it to anyone's attention. I just think somebody's unfurled this document in the 1700s, doing some, you know, doing some history work in, in one of the in one of the in one of the um, chancery offices. I've seen this scribbling, and I've reached a conclusion that has just come down the ages. That's fascinating, because yeah, because it seemed puzzling. Because when um, 
reading your uh, book on the Beauforts and these, um, which both actually should learn actually who these um, these first Beauforts are, because actually they seem to have a pretty good relationship with um, with Henry the Fourth and seem to be quite a key part of his regime. We absolutely do. So of the first of the first generation of the Beauforts, we have John the eldest. Uh, John becomes the nobleman of the family. Um, it, it's key to point out that with them becoming legitimised, you know, the world was their oyster after that point. Up to, up, up to the point of them becoming legitimised, the Beauforts could have entered no public office. They couldn't have entered the church. You know, the doors were closed. There was very little they could do. Once they become legitimised, they are now, as I've mentioned, fully legal members of the English royal family. And they really... You know, they, they took the baton and they and they run with it. John, the eldest Beauford, he becomes the Earl of uh, the Earl of Somerset. Uh, he becomes the nobleman, the leader of the family. His brother, Henry, he becomes first a bishop and then later a cardinal. You know, he becomes one of those really massive figures of English history during this period. Uh, the so-called cardinal of England, the richest man in England in the early 15th century. We have a third brother, Thomas. Now, Thomas is initially, you know, the soldier of the family. But when his elder brother, John, dies, he takes over that mantle as the noble. And he eventually rises to become um, the, the Duke of Exeter. And in my opinion, the finest figure of the 15th century. You know, Thomas Beaufort is a, is a character that I love. I think he was a magnificent uh, statesman, soldier, he really went to work on behalf of Henry V in those French wars, uh, those famous French wars. And then we have the only girl, the only woman of the of the original generation of Beauforts, and that is Joan Beaufort. She becomes a countess, and she uh, marries into the famous Neville family in the north of England. And through her, in fact, many people in the 15th century can can draw their lineage from. I mean, she had 14 children with her husband, Ralph Neville, and amongst her grandchildren, which surprises a lot of people because, you know, the Beauforts are always connected uh, with this idea of them being the enemies of the House of York. Among her grandchildren are Richard III and Edward IV. Um, They are her grandchildren. So, you know, Richard III himself is technically a bit of a Beaufort, you know, he's a distant cousin of Henry VII. Uh, you know, the Beauforts really were integral to the foundations of the House of Lancaster on the English throne in the 15th century. You know, as I mentioned, their, their elder half-brother, Henry IV, was a usurper. You know, he, he took the rightful the, the crown from the rightful king, Richard III, and he established the Lancastrians on the English throne. But it was a very shaky foundation. You know, usurpers never rule uh, easily. They always face challenges. Luckily for him, you know, the Beaufort family really rallied around and helped keep him on that throne. The age differences, you know, they, they were much younger than their, than their half-brother, Henry, Henry IV. They were more on par with his son, and their nephew, the future Henry V. That's who they really got close with, and they went on to serve Henry V really well. 
and thereafter Henry VI. You know, the Lancasters and the Beauforts, you can't split them. You know, they are they are kinsmen, they are one and the same. With uh, Henry VI, yes, we lose uh, John Beaufort. Uh, Thomas, your favourite, um, dies um, and doesn't have any heirs. So we end up with just uh, the Cardinal in sort of flying the Beaufort fag, uh, flag uh, under Henry VI. So what's his role in the, the regency of Henry VI? Do, you know, Henry VI becomes king at nine months old and England has a bit of a problem. Um, you know, it's always a power vacuum when you're faced with the absence of an adult king. Um, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, he, he believed, perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly, but he believed that he had been entrusted with the overall governance of England. And, you know, he, he anticipated, really, that he would rule as regent with next to no interference. His uncle, Henry Beauford, the Bishop of Winchester at this point, he thought otherwise. You know, perhaps he knew something, something about his his nephew Gloucester, that um, that he wouldn't make a, a good regent. And I'm inclined to agree. I think I think Humphrey of Gloucester was a um, was not a very reliable figure. So Gloucester and his uncle Cardinal, uh, well Bishop Beaufort at the time, they enter this very brutal and bitter feud with each other. And it's all linked to how should England be governed. Gloucester thinks he should govern it. Bishop Beaufort believes that England should be governed by a council. You know, more more heads than just one being in charge of the governance. And they enter this feud that goes on to their deaths. You know, it's a 20-year feud that's really bitter. And it has a dramatic legacy. Because when the Wars of the Roses eventually erupt, the two separate factions, they, they are almost, um, they're almost the prodigies on either side of Gloucester and Bishop Beaufort. You know, the, the Beaufort faction during the Wars of the Roses, the Dukes of Somerset, they followed their uncle, um, Bishop Beaufort. One of Gloucester's political prodigies was Richard of York, and he takes up that mantle. So we see this influence in where the Wars of the Roses started as far back as 1422, 20, you know, um, 30 years before the Wars of the Roses. And it's in this feud between Gloucester and Beaufort. With um, when, well, so the Cardinal's around for a while, isn't he? He's, he's quite old when, um, when he dies, but obviously as a religious man, he doesn't have, well, no legitimate children uh, to follow him. Thomas doesn't either. So actually, it's just uh, John. Uh, it, it's John, yes. So we, ha- we have the original, the eldest Beaufort, John Beaufort. He dies in 1410. Um, a very good jouster, apparently. But, you know, he, he, he exits the world uh, relatively early. And he did have, he did leave behind, you know, a, a brood of his own sons. He left behind a namesake, John. Now, this, this particular John... His life was a bit of a bit of a tragic waste. Uh, as a young man, he goes to war in France, gets captured, and gets imprisoned for twenty years. Um, when he's finally ransomed in the early fourteen forties, you know he he comes out of a French prison like a batter of hell, straight back to England. Straight wants to go back to war to France. He's a rash, 
and a foolish man. And he leads a couple of disastrous campaigns over in France. Um, he is politically ostracised when he comes back. And he dies in unclear circumstances in 1444. Uh, many people, again, through history, have, have, have understood that he died by his own hand, um, that he died by suicide. I don't quite follow that uh, simply because the only source that says this uh, is the Crowland Chronicler. And at the time of his death, John Beaufort had uh, his own disagreement with the Crowland Chronicler over a piece of land. He, he wanted to build a little bridge, but he didn't want the Abbey to be able to use it. I mean, I, I don't know how petty you can get. <laughs> Um, so when he dies in unclear, uh, you know, circumstances, they write, it is said that it was by his own hand. I don't know if that is just slandering someone they hate because he wouldn't let them use the bridge. I don't know. Um, but it just shows it's not always as crystal clear. But either way, another John Beaufort exits the world. And he is the father of the famous Margaret Beaufort. Uh, Margaret Beaufort is just one years old when this John dies. So the direct lineage of the Beaufort family comes down to her. You know, we've got John Beaufort the first, John Beaufort the second, and he's left behind just this one-year-old girl, Margaret Beaufort. So she inherits the bulk of the Beaufort family estates. You know, that, 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 is, a, that is a wealthy little toddler. Um, the, 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 fa the family titles, however, the Dukedom of Somerset, they go to John's brother, Edmund Beaufort. And it is this brother, Edmund Beaufort, who is the, who is the guy who really kicks off the Wars of the Roses. You know, it, it is his very deep uh, disagreement with Richard of York that ultimately triggers the Wars of the Roses. And I always try and point out, for me, the Wars of the Roses was never a, a, was never a conflict between York and Lancaster. It was always a conflict between York and Beaufort. And we can even see that by going all the way towards its conclusion, Bosworth, um, between Richard III, the son of York, and Henry Tudor, who was, for all intents and purposes, fighting the Beaufort cause. Why Why does it get in... Because Lancaster... Why does it get called Lancaster? Because that's really quite obvious when you look at it like that. It's really quite straightforward. I think it's just because, you know, Henry VI was the king. He was on the throne. Yeah. But, I mean, th th this was a... Get that, him. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the problem, yeah. You know, he, he's very much an inert king watching from the sidelines as people act in his name, they act for him. You know, he, he's a, he, he'd, be a, he'd be a perfect Morgan Freeman-esque narrator of a film <laughs> of this period, you know, just, just observing from the sidelines, yeah. um, laughing and singing under a tree, as one chronicler said, <laughs> um, whilst it all went off around him. That's a great idea of how to tie it all together. I keep saying this should be a film. <laughs> then, so we've got a bit more of the jigsaw puzzle there. Perfect. 
uh, picking up on that point, really, from Ali there, like how Lancastrian are the Beauforts now? Because obviously initially, you know, Henry IV, half-brothers, Henry V, their uncles. Once we get to Henry VI, has it diluted a bit or would Henry still very much have seen them as part of his kin? I, I think by this point, they are very much part of his kin. Uh, and I base that just on how close he kept uh, Edmund Beaufort around him. You know, Edmund Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset, and uh, Henry VI, they are, you know, they are they are really tightly connected. Edmund Beaufort is, is the great charge level against him. He's, in effect, ruling the country on behalf of uh, Henry VI. What I think really, really um, interesting to note, and not many people make a point of this, is that up until 1453, there is no heir in the kingdom, you know, Henry VI mm. have a son. Everybody, you know, as we know how history unfurled, everybody just accepts the Richard of York would have been next in line. I don't think that would have necessarily been the case. We have Richard of York really, by this point, engaging in a very, again, a very bitter feud with Edmund Beaufort. They've been feuding by this point, for the previous five years, you know, Richard of York has done everything he can to destroy Edmund Beaufort. I think if push had come to shove and there hadn't been this prince born in 1453, Henry VI would have appointed Edmund Beaufort his heir. Because as I've pointed out, the Beauforts were not barred from the throne. There is no evidence they were they were barred from the throne. Yes, Richard of York may have had the greater, more impressive lineage going back to Edward III, but so what? The king at this time is Henry VI, and his closest cousin is Edmund Beaufort. Edmund Beaufort is far closer in blood to Henry VI at this point than Richard of York is. So I think a lot of this feud is starting to come with one potential eye on the future. You know, it's by no means a dynastic war or anything at this point, but they're not stupid. You know, they know that the king at this point doesn't have a son. What's going to happen? Far more interestingly, it is this year, 1453, but Henry VI now starts to bring in his half-brother, Edmund Tudor. And what did he do with his half-brother? He marries her to little Margaret Beaufort. Is he creating a completely other potential long-term plan if he didn't have his own child, which he does? So all of these plans are ultimately brushed by the wayside. But it doesn't mean that in 1451, 1452, 1453, these thoughts are not going through these men's heads, which is drawing them further and further towards the path of war. People don't pay much attention to that because, you know, we know how the history Mm. Out. So what's the point in wasting time with what-ifs? But it is those what-ifs that did drive these mm. men to war. Before we get on to the, um, the Wars of the Roses and um, Edmund's... Well, I suppose actually he doesn't have an awful lot to do in the Wars of the Roses and lasts very long for, for Edmund, but he's popped up in our previous two consort episodes for Catherine of Valois and Margaret of Anjou in the scandal sections as... Uh, 
certainly with Catalan Valois, at least, obviously there was potential for the two of them to get married until the government basically changes the law to stop Catherine of Valois marrying. But there's a question mark over uh, the parentage of Edmund Tudor, um, with some people sometimes speculating, could it be Edmund Beaufort? And there's even speculation about Margaret of Anjou and Henry VI's child, Prince Edward, and whether that was definitely Henry VI or not. And Edmund seems to get his uh, name bandied about in both cases. Is there, do you think there's any truth to either of those rumours? The you know, the, the, the measured answer would be, unfortunately, I don't have, you know, a paternity test. I can't go back in time and work it all out. But if I'm going to put my cards on the table, I think they're both absolutely nonsense. Uh, people are just trying to... It's that age-old propaganda-esque thing. We do talk a lot about how the Tudors use propaganda to, you know, to, to really ram home the point about their reign. But those Yorkists were masters of propaganda mm. in the 1450s. You know, they, they really went to town with this kind of, uh, you know, accusations and slander. Catherine de Valois and Edmund Beaufort, it, it's possible that they had some sort of liaison, some sort of um, a, attachment, and it definitely spooked Humphrey of Gloucester. And this all comes back to Humphrey of Gloucester did not want the queen, the Dowager Queen, getting with the nephew of his rival, Bishop Beaufort. Mm. I, I can see all of that. And, you know, the, the year that this this, par, this parliamentary act, or, um, you, you know, he's brought in, is the same year that Edmund Beaufort is shipped off to France. You know, you go, get out, go to France, you know, forget this queen. But with it going down to him being the father of Edmund Tudor, it's nonsense on, on, on various levels. First and foremost, back then, the only thing that we have when it comes to who is the father of somebody is whether that person accepted paternity. You know, and, and, and I, I see this with so many of these similar ideas. You know, was Henry VIII the father of Thomas Perrot? Oh, and Henry Carey. Well, he never accepted them, so I'm going to go with no. Now, does that mean he was technically not, you know, the blood father? I don't know. But he, he didn't accept the paternity, therefore let's not waste our time discussing it. It's, it, it's, it's irrelevant. You know, we're not going to suddenly boot the Queen off the throne based on something that happened back then. Mm. Um, same with Edward IV. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that Edward IV was not the real son of Richard of York. Well, Richard of York accepted him as his son, so let's just stick with that. Owen Tudor always accepted the paternity of him. Why is he called Edmund? Surely this means he's Edmund Beaufort Jr. <laughs> well, not really. I mean, if Edmund Beaufort was born in November, he would have, sorry, Edmund Tudor was born in November, it's very possible he could have been born on the feast day of Edmund the Martyr. You know, people back then were named after the same stage that they were born on. It's very plausible that Edmund Beaufort was his godfather, you know, and he, he took his name from that. They were very close. You know, the Beauforts, the Tudors, they were all very close at this point around court. Edmund Tudor was born not too far away from Barry St. Edmunds. You know, did this have a, an impact on, on his name? We can't just go by this particular name 
and say that he must be Edmund Beaufort Jr. There's no grounds for it other than to try and slander uh, Henry Tudor. You know, it's very much, oh, look at you. You were clearly born from this from this line. You're not Tudor at all. And as a Welshman, I do I do view a lot of that with a bit of a bit of a well, what's wrong with being a Tudor, being of Welsh <laughs> background? <laughs> um, you know, so um no, I don't put much much uh, much thought towards these uh, such and such in the real farm. Mm. And it's very much a standard slur of mm. the time. Oh, I don't like you. He's not your dad. <laughs> it's it's quite playground, isn't it? Almost it, 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 it's playground, yeah. Yeah, we get that a lot at the moment doing the consorts. That seems to be uh, the way. As soon as they feet want to slander them, just say, "Not sure about uh, her bedroom antics," and then all of a sudden there's a rumor, and that's it. It's done for. Her. Yeah, and again, you know, it, it comes back to uh, Margaret of Anjou. Oh well, the Prince Edward. He must have been Edmund Beaufort's child because they've been married for six years, the king and queen, and they've had no sons. And suddenly he's fathered this child with the queen. Well, hang on a minute. He's got his own claim to the throne. Why is he going to father a, father a child with the queen to pass it off as the king's child? <laughs> it's, it's kind of, you know, shooting himself in the foot there a little bit. Um, as I said um, earlier, Edmund doesn't get an awfully uh, long-lasting role in the Wars of the Roses. So it's almost sort of, it's often seen, although obviously as you've explained, you can go back, you know, to the 1420s for when it's really brewing. But the kind of starting gun, if you will, is seen as the first Battle of St Albans where Edmund basically gets assassinated, doesn't he, at the battle? It's not even much of a battle, is it? It's a, it's, it's, it's a mob hit. It's a mm. mass assassination. That, that, that's all the first so-called Battle of St Albans is. It's the three Yorkist lords, uh, the Duke of York, the Earl of Salisbury and the Earl of Warwick, just losing their heads after years of getting nowhere. They've just decided, you know what, we're just going to go in and we're going to wipe out our enemies and we'll deal with the rest of it afterwards. Again, it's a, it's a complete 20th century mafia assassination. That's all there is. Uh, and, and it briefly works, you know. They, they take out they take out the Lancastrian leadership, and they, they they grab the reins of power. But all they've done is created a whole group of sons who want to avenge their dads. Mm-hmm. Those sons, they do avenge their dads. They get, you know, they kill York, they kill Salisbury, they kill um, York's son Rutland. But all they've then done. <laughs> He's created a whole yeah. other lot of vengeful sons, and lo and behold, the 1460s are an absolute nightmare with just sons killing sons mm. and so on. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle of violence. Um, so I would say, you know, I would go back and say, you know, York, you shouldn't have done that, mate. You know, <laughs> since the Dolby's 1455, um, many people are trying to defend him, say, you know, he. He reached the end of his tether and he had to, he had no other recourse. You know, could you imagine if he put that into modern day politics, you know? Um, a particular leader, we can't get rid of him, we can't move him to the side. You know what, let's just wipe him out. You, you can't, you, you have to find, 
you have to find your your legal ways and means. And sometimes, if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. You know, unfortunately, that's life. You can't go rampaging through the streets of St Albans trying to wipe them out. And even for that particular, you know, bloody age, that was not okay. You know, that was treason to launch an attack on the king's on the king's um on the king's right hand man. And of course it opened up this this bloodletting mm. that went on to Bosworth and then we can even trace a lot of the bloodshed that happened during the Tudor's reign and Henry VIII's and Elizabeth I's own paranoia over losing their thrones. That all stems back to the Wars of the Roses, you know. Mm. And arguably before to the Lancastrians usurping the throne in the first place mm. in 1599. Well, I can't remember what the uh, justification for St Albans was at the time. Like, hang on, was that a bad council one? Yeah, they wanted to get rid of the of the king's evil councillors and remove yeah. them from the side, and that became very much the... I mean, that always had been the justification for launching an attack, you know. Even you go back to the Peasant Revolt and previous rebellions... It's always about removing the king's evil councillors, those bad yeah. men who are spending all the king's money and so, and not so on. on the king. Yeah. 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 So. He does seem to get, well, I was going to say, he does seem to get a bit of a sort of a bad reputation in Somerset. There is often, I don't know if this is just a sort of a pro Yorkist approach in a lot of the books, but the sense that York does a fairly good job when he does get the chance and he seems to have a better career in France than. Somerset did and that Somerset's almost seen as this like he's the problem um do you think that is that is there any truth in that do you think or is it just actually that York just really wanted rid of him and would just say anything to justify it you, you know the the, the, na- the narrative has come down this is what I always find interesting we get told so much by supporters of of the House of York in the modern day that <laughs> you know history written by the victors and the Tudors they are the ones who who really wrote the narrative about what occurred back then. But Edmund Beaufort is has himself been a victim of that same narrative being written outside his control by the Yorkists. You know, this idea that Edmund Beaufort was a was a terrible, you know, lieutenant, lieutenant in in France, that he was a problem, that he was a corrupt councillor. These are all Yorkist ideas that were put into Parliament after his death by Richard of York. Now, the truth, I would say, is when you study Edmund Beaufort's career in France, it wasn't great, but he's at the back end of the Hundred Years' War. Hmm. He is based in Rouen. He's based in Normandy. He is in charge of a dwindling and... um, heavily outnumbered and overwhelmed English force against the French. If York had been in there or anybody else had been in the position, they simply wouldn't have succeeded. You know, it was very much a poison chalice he had. Mm. I don't think we can put too much too much um, focus on his actual military capabilities. But of course, the fact that he was in the position when France was falling played into York's hands and York really drove home mm. the point. Um, I think York had shown himself in his brief protectorates to be quite a good leader. 
I probably think that York could have done a much better job than anybody else in England doing the 1450s, if given the chance. Um, you could extend that similar idea to his son, Richard III, in 1483. You know, yeah, Richard III may very well have gone on to become a really good king and, you know, accomplished great things for the realm. But the problem is both father and son's actions in going after power is what proved their, their downfall. You know, you just can't go and seize what you want because you think you can do better. Richard, III, Richard of York, he wanted power. He was constantly excluded from it. He was rich. He was wealthy. He needed to do the, the medieval version of take a long cruise somewhere and just enjoy <laughs> it, you know, enjoy his wealth. But he couldn't leave it lie. <clears throat> he wanted that power for himself. He didn't want Edmund Bulford to have it. He just wiped out his enemy. What, so where do we come down on it? Uh, it's... It's tricky. It's one of those where it almost depends who we're doing at the time. Because like when you're doing Edward the Fourth, you probably maybe start to sympathise a bit more with the Yorkist case. But when you're doing Henry the Sixth, you kind of feel a bit sorry for him getting battered by all these more powerful, shouty He's men. He's still that... there, isn't he? Yeah, bless him. He's up there narrating this. That's that's <laughs> I keep forgetting about him. So for the the Dukes of Somerset, it kind of all comes crashing down. Um, during the Wars of the Roses, so the third duke and fourth duke who both lose their lives in battles. But as you said, ultimately the Beaufort line does continue with Margaret and into Henry. Um, so, and I guess it's it's not unusual, obviously, people to have multiple identities. Maybe it's something a problem with the way we talk about the Wars of the Roses that we always have to put a label on, you know, York or Lancaster, etc. But with Henry, like, is he is he seen as being more Tudor? Lancaster or Beaufort? Like, would contemporaries have had a particular identity that they associated him with? I think they probably didn't even know who he was. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you know, Henry's a, a, an interesting an interesting person. Um, he would have been recognised at the time as Henry of Richmond. You know, Henry Earl of Richmond. You know, it's not, they weren't necessarily using surnames as we kind of bestow upon them. Um it depends where you're asking this question. In Wales, back then, you know, he very much was of this great Welsh lineage, um, the, the Tudor family. He was the great eagle of Snowdonia and all these other terms they, they gave him. Um, his English side would have been irrelevant. In England, he would have been, you know, the Earl of Richmond, um, the, the son of Edmund, Earl of Richmond. And I doubt his mother would have been given much more than a second thought because we have to remember that Henry on his on his father's side, even though he didn't get any claim to the English throne through his father, on his father's side, his half-uncle was Henry VI of Lancaster. Mm. So Henry Richmond, Henry Tudor, I would say was always seen first and foremost as a member of the House of Lancaster just because his uncle was the king of Lancaster. You know, they wouldn't have put him so much in a in in the Beaufort side. They would have they would have recognized that he was related to the Beaufort family. But you know, this is still a very much a, a patriarchal society where, you know, emphasis is given on the father's bloodline. So I don't think he would have been seen per se as a as a Beaufort. Um even when he becomes king of England, this is what a lot of people forget when they just bring up 
you know, who had the greater right uh, to the to the throne. Henry came in. He didn't come in, you know, he, he came in saying he was descended from Edward III, but ultimately he came in and just conquered the country, said, I am the king because I am the king. <laughs> the end. Yeah. You know, th- that's it. Forget all this other uh, other stuff. You know, he, he wasn't even coming in and specifically saying, I am a Beaufort boy. I am, I am the king. He was just the nephew of Henry VI of Lancaster who had come back to be mm. king because it's God's great plan for him. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I mean, again, yeah, you know, we're, we're putting labels on it, but I'd probably say he's just identified with the House of Lancaster. Mm. Um, although saying that, what is interesting is that he only becomes a king of England through the support of members of the House of York. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 always, I always laugh with a bit of irony that Henry is, in effect, just another Yorkist king. You know, he becomes king through the support of all of those Yorkists who hate Richard III for allegedly killing the princes in the tower. Um, and when he becomes king, most of what Henry does as king is just following the example set by Edward IV mm. of York. You know, he, he, he's, he's a king... Uh, born and bred into the House of Lancaster that uses his York connections to win. Because mm. mm. I thought it was interesting, your, your book finishes with Tewkesbury. So do you think that's when we should sort of see the end of the Beaufort dynasty? It's like that is the real Beaufort line in the traditional sense of dynastic line. <laughs> I mean, if, if I was given a lot more words, word count... I might have continued, um, but, but I, I thought I thought I did end it. You know, but there is an eye on that kind of cinematic ending. Um, there's that, but I mean, yeah, ultimately, you know, dynasties are certainly back then forged in, you know, in 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 male in the male line. Uh, Tewkesbury is where the legitimate Beaufort male line has got wiped out. Um, you know, the, the last two. The last two legitimate Beauforts, Edmund and John, are dragged from Tewkesbury Abbey and beheaded. What I what I do like about the, the Beaufort story is that when when Henry Tudor's ships are coming across um, in 1485 to invade England, he is not the only Beaufort-blooded lad on there. With him is his cousin Charles Somerset. Now Charles Charles Somerset was the illegitimate son of Henry Beaufort, who was the third Duke of Somerset. It gets quite confusing with all these Dukes of Somerset <laughs> and Wars and Roses. Um, but you you basically have Henry Tudor coming along on the ship and next to him, Charles Somerset, who is an illegitimate son of the Duke of Somerset. And he, in fact, goes on to re-establish the, the family himself under the Tudors. And I like this idea that the Beauforts started in illegitimate circumstances in the 1370s, mm. and they are refounded again a hundred years later in the 1470s in these illegitimate circumstances. And in fact, through Charles Somerset, um, because he couldn't use the name Beaufort because he wasn't a, a legitimate son, so they gave him the name Somerset. Charles Somerset, uh, his descendants are still the current. Dukes of Beaufort today. 
So the family was completely refounded. You had, in the 15th century, for 100 years, you had the Beaufort men who were Dukes of Somerset, and then it got flipped around. So you now have the, the, the Somerset men who are the Dukes of Beaufort. <laughs> and they are still one of the richest and oldest dukedoms still around in this country. Um, I, I did read something funny once. I don't know if it's true. I'm not really into, um, you know, I, I'm a Welsh Farley boy. I, I don't really have much personal knowledge of uh, the upper echelons of <laughs> of British society. But I did read once in um, an article that apparently it's well known in the kind of, you know, the, the high elite social circles, circles that the current Dukes of Beaufort look down on the Windsors as being nothing more than upstarts. <laughs> oh, yeah. they, they could trace their dukedom back to the 1470s. <laughs> um, you know, they, they are now old, old English nobility. Um, <coughs> you know, the Beaufort, the House of Beaufort was wiped out in 1470, but they definitely had the last laugh. As I said, you know, just take a look at the Jubilee that'll happen this, you know, the, the week of this recording. The Dukes of Beaufort are still there, and on the throne is Her Majesty, a direct descendant of Henry Tudor and the Beaufort family. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. Now, something else we wanted to pick your brains on was when we were doing uh, Margaret of Anjou podcast, Ali got quite fascinated by Henry VII's uh, uncle, Jasper Tudor, and what he was or wasn't doing uh, in the Wars of the Roses. And I think particularly we're interested in the Battle of Tewkesbury, where Margaret of Anjou is leading her forces. Uh, so this is after the Battle of Barnet. Warwick's been killed. Margaret's here with her son. Um, they make it, or they try to make it, across to Wales, where the plan presumably is to link up with Jasper's army. Um, but the thing which I'd, we'd never really thought about until I think there was one historian who did put it in a book and seemed a little bit cynical about Jasper Tudor was sort of this suggestion of why Jasper isn't making his way towards Margaret and is it a communications issue does he not know she's coming or is there an extent to which Jasper had kind of decided that maybe Lancaster wasn't going to win and he was putting his um eggs in the the Tudor basket with his nephew I see I see nothing other than than to suggest that Jasper Tudor was with all intents and purposes heading to link up with Margaret of Anjou. Um, if, we go, if we go back, you know, back 10 years before that to the Battle of Mortimer's Cross, that's precisely what's happening at this stage of the wars when Margaret is in the north of England. Um, you know, she's called, she's called the, the, the armies of one of the Dukes of Somerset and the Earls of Devon to march up through England to meet her. And she's also requested for Jasper Tudor to raise his Welsh army and come and meet her. You know, they're trying to get the full Lancastrian army together. Now, throughout the Wars of the Roses, it's very much a case of trying to intercept and try and prevent any one side from linking up their entire entire army. Both York and Lancaster do this successfully um, at certain levels, certain times through the Wars of the Roses. 1461, Jasper Tudor is absolutely on his way north to link up with Margaret of Anjou, and he gets intercepted by the future Edward IV, who kills, who, who kills Owen Tudor and defeats the Lancastrians at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross. Jasper's forced to turn around and leg it out of the country. Hmm. Ten years later, it's the same thing that's happening. 
Jasper has raised his Welsh uh, troops. You know, he's been hard at work around the Pembrokeshire and Tembe area, and he's now heading off to link up with Margaret of Anjou. He just doesn't make it in time. Um, you know, I, I don't really see any reason that there should be any cynicism or any doubting of what his intentions were. You know, he had pledged his entire life to the cause of Lancaster. And yes, Henry Tudor is his nephew, but so is Prince Edward, who is killed mm. at Tewkesbury. That is still his nephew. That is his elder brother, Henry VI's son. So I think it would it is quite a cynical reading to think that Jasper was, you know, placing his eggs in another basket. Um, again, we would pigeonhole him into very much a, you're the Tudor family, you're the Lancaster family, you're this. I'm not massively sure they would have seen it all our way. You know, they were just simple. Um, I am Jasper of Pembroke. This is Henry of, of Richmond. We are going to save the Prince of Wales, Prince Edward, who he calls at one point my my liege lord, um, and Jasper was always in charge of Wales on behalf of his nephew, Prince Edward of Wales. I just think he doesn't make her in time, and that's not unique to Jasper at Tewkesbury. That happens throughout the Wars of the Roses. Um, it happens to Richard of York at the Battle of Wakefield, where he lost his head. Um, he was waiting for either his son, Edward of March, or the Earl of Warwick to come and save him. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy, is it? It's not easy at the moment because, you know, after the M4, it <laughs> goes south. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to do pain at times. Um, don't don't ever try and catch public transport, I tell you that, in South Wales. <laughs> Jasper, got his, Jasper got as far as Chepstow. Um, the Ball of Tewkesbury, everyone knows the drugs for the area. Chepstow and Tewkesbury is not that far away. He was in the region when he would have received news. It's over, you know, they've been annihilated. And it's at that point that he actually gets accosted at Chepstow by a chap called Roger Vaughan. So Roger Vaughan has been sent by the Yorkists to go and get Jasper Tudor. Roger Vaughan was the man who almost certainly beheaded Jasper Tudor's father ten years earlier. Mm. Um, he he was one of those um, one of those rivals of the Tudors in Wales. The sources are the sources are terrible. Uh, which means all I know is that at some point in Caldecott, uh, in Chepstow, Roger Vaughan was sent after Jasper Tudor, but Jasper Tudor got the drop on him and chopped his head off. So, you know, a bit, bit, bit of payback for his dad. Um, that, that, that's all we know that happened. And then Jasper Tudor, with his nephew, Henry, leg it across South Wales to Tembe, where they are then besieged for a bit in... Pembroke Castle. And this is quite an interesting little, little, little dynamic going on here because they're besieged in Pembroke Castle and um, the, this Welshman in the, in the area, Morgan, Morgan decides to besiege them and he's going to try and capture them for the Yorkist king. Morgan's brother turns up, Davis, and then attacks his brother, <laughs> giving Jasper enough time to, to sneak out and run to Tembe on the Welsh coast. And it's there that Henry and Jasper follow some underground tunnels. And they manage to get down to the coast where a small ship is waiting and it takes them across to, to France where they claim refuge um, 
for the next 14 years. So there's a, there's a lot going on in mm. the escape in 1471. Um, and again, you know, Netflix, give me a deal. Let me write this <laughs> episode for you. Mm. It'll be fantastic. I've got a vague recollection in Tenby of some tunnels at the back of a shop or something. Is that, are they still? They're, they're, they're underneath boots, the pharmacist. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, and they they go all the way down to to the harbour. Um, I haven't been in them yet. They're, they're they're quite they're quite small, and I'm you know I'm a rugby player build, and I'm a bit claustrophobic. I'm not sure I really want to go through some <laughs> underground tunnels. But very recently, um, Anita Rani, the TV presenter, managed to go under them mm. for her show Britain by Beach, and you know you can see, you can see the the, the 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 tunnels make their way down to the harbour. Henry Tudor has, has escaped at this point, you know, by the skin of his teeth. And that's not the last time this happens to him. Uh, when he's over in Brittany, uh, in exile, after a couple of years, the, 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 Duke of, the Duke of Brittany makes a deal with Edward IV. You can have Henry back, take him back. And he hands him over to a bunch of English guards. And Henry's marched to the, to the um, coastal port of St. Malo. And just as Henry's about to be put on a boat that I think probably would have taken him to his death in England, uh, he's probably about 18 years old at this time, uh, he suddenly feigns an illness. And while he's feigning an illness, the local population start attacking the English soldiers. And he manages to run away and he claims sanctuary in a nearby church. Now, the English soldiers start to try and break into the church. And as we know from Tewkesbury, the Yorkists, they don't play by the by the rules sometimes when it comes to things like claiming sanctuary. But the Breton population are so furious by this. They attack the English sailors and they're forced to sail back to England without Henry, who has, you know, he, he, he's lived another day uh, once again. Um, you know, th- th- this, is a, this, is a, this is a kid who does grow up to be a paranoid king, and he always gets criticism for being this king of suspicion. Is there any wonder they're trying to kill him all through his childhood? Um, you know, but the great survivor, and this comes, you know, he, he learned from his uncle Jasper, who perhaps was the greatest, greatest survivor of them all, the man who went from the start to the end of the Wars of the Roses. Mm. Mm. God, that's an achievement in itself, isn't it? And it's kind of how what the fine margins there's so many times in the Wars of the Roses. Like you say, if Jasper was so close to Margaret, you know, you think if he'd been able to leave a bit earlier if Margaret had just gone a little bit quicker, you know, that could have made all the difference if those two armies had linked up. It could have made all the difference, although, you know, <laughs> Edward the Fourth was a bit of a powerhouse, you know. If I find it, uh, you know, sometimes it, it does feel, you know, it's like a sporting metaphor. Sometimes when the momentum is with you, mm. it just feels like some teams are just not born to lose. Yeah. Like Edward the Fourth was one of them. Mm. Um, I feel like you know no- nothing was nothing was stopping him at that point from wiping out those Lancastrians. Um, and one last question, Walter. Actually, on the um, when we're on the uh, the Tudor brothers, you um, tweeted earlier this year that you um, believe that Henry the Seventh's father, so Jasper's brother uh, Edmund Tudor, um, may have been murdered by Richard, Duke of York? Because he's often said that potentially like it was plague or something like that, but you think maybe he was actually bumped off. What, what was uh, what's behind that? I do. Um, 
Right, so, so the narrative has always been uh, Edmund Tudor has been locked up in Carmarthen Castle and then he's released and he dies of plague at the age of 26. Nice and simple. Hmm. However, let's add some context to this. The reason Edmund Tudor is in the castle in the first place is because he's been locked up, he's been attacked in the castle and locked up by two of Richard of York's uh, chief supporters in Wales, William Herbert and uh, Walter Devereux. They've attacked him at Carmarthen and they've chucked him in his own dungeon. Now, there's a major wider context to this at the time. It's 1456. We've already had one of the battles of the Wars of the Roses and Lancaster and York are mobilising all across England. York needs to take control of southwest Wales. He needs to wrest it away from the Tudors because Wales is one of those major battlegrounds of the Wars of the Roses. Most of the major participants in the Wars of the Roses have Welsh lands. You know, Warwick has lands in Wales, York does, uh, the House of Lancaster does, uh, the Duke of Buckingham does. You know, Wales is a battleground and they're all trying to manoeuvre to get the strongest position. I find it very suspicious that they've attacked Edmund Tudor at um, Carmarthen Castle, then they've locked him in the dungeon, and then lo and behold, he's suddenly dead. <laughs> it feels for me very much an opportunity, you know, for York to have issued commands to Herbert and Devereux to just knock him off. Get rid of um, Edmund Tudor. That will secure for us Carmarthen and it will secure for us West Wales that we will now be able to overwhelm the Lancastrians in South Wales. Only that year as well, Edmund Tudor has, by now it would have been widely known, he had impregnated a 12-year-old girl, Margaret Beaufort. Aside from that being quite scandalous, even back then, could that have been an overriding motivation behind Herbert and Devereux perhaps killing Edmund Tudor? You know, he's impregnated, not he's impregnated a girl this young, but he has impregnated a young girl of royal bearing and he has now uh, impregnated her with a son who could prove to be a dynastic uh, alternative, a dynastic adversary to the House of York down the line. You know, it's very much, let's get this sorted now. Let's get rid of one of our rivals, Edmund Tudor. Of course, they wouldn't have... They wouldn't have um they wouldn't have realized that it would have just place Jasper Tudor into Wales in his stead. And Jasper Tudor did prove to be very good at leaving and galvanizing the Welsh. Furthermore, after Edmund Tudor's death, William Herbert and Walter Devereux are pursued by the King and Queen for seven months after the death of Edmund Tudor. They're accused of being behind rapes, murders, pillaging in Wales. They are arrested. There's a reward of a £1,000 per out for William Herbert. You know, he didn't just get away with whatever occurred in Carmarthen Castle. They went after him for seven months and finally locked him up. He was charged and tried in Hereford, but he was given a general pardon by the Queen if only he would side with her from there on which he did for about a year, and then he became 
possibly one of the greatest Yorkist loyalists there was. In Wales, throughout the Wars of the Roses, we have Jasper Tudor on one side, we have William Herbert on the other side. They both, at one time or the other, were the Earl of Pembroke. Um, they were the most bitter of enemies, and I think it all stems down to the fact that William Herbert killed Jasper Tudor's brother. The most interesting, of course, is that William Herbert was Henry Tudor's guardian for 10 years. Hmm. Hmm. Gosh, that would have been awful. <laughs> he, 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 he bought the, after Jasper Tudor was forced to, to run away in 1461, William Herbert bought the rights to Henry Tudor and, ra and raised him at Raglan Castle. And I always imagine some of those conversations. Excuse me, my lord. Did you kill my father? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, horrible. Absolutely horrible. Well, it's just all the local conflicts. I think that's the other thing realising with the Wars of the Roses. You know, so often we just focus on those people at the centre, but there's so many small scale, well, not small scale, but, you know, but regional uh, personal rivalries going on that just feed into the mix. It's not just the people at court in London. It's, it's very difficult to study and it's, it's even more difficult to try and just get across to, to your readers and your listeners just what is going on because, you know, we're throwing name after name at them. We're throwing, you know, the Duke of this, the Earl of that. And when you start to get down into the households, it's there where you really see the Wars of the Roses happening. You know, in all of these little divergent loyalties, it's an absolute... Uh, it's an absolute nightmare, to be honest, and I, <laughs> and I hate it. I just can't stop. I just cannot stop myself. And as soon as we're done with this podcast, I'm going to go back and delve deeper into 15th century Wales and try and work out which farmer is switching sides this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fascinating stuff. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us uh, about all of this. All absolutely fascinating. Yeah, thank no you problems. very, very much. But how can people find you on uh, social media, etc., if they want to find out more about you or follow you? Um, if you uh, jump up onto either Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram and put in my name, Nathan Amin, I'll be the one there arguing all day long about why the Tudors had to wipe out the House of York. <laughs> if you want to come and share your opinions one way or the other, I'm always game for a chat. Brilliant. Well, thank, thank you so, you so much, much for joining us. us. No promise. Thank you very much. Cheers, Nathan. Cheers. So that was uh, Nathan Eamon, the uh, House of Beaufort, and uh, a bit of Jasper and Edmund Tudor. Turns out he did know all the stuff. <laughs> Indeed he did. Uh, so yes, um, he gave uh, his details there. If you want to read his book, uh, on the Beauforts, which you didn't actually read the title out. That's called uh, The House of Beaufort, The Bastard Line That Captured uh, the Throne, which is definitely worth a read. Tell you all about uh, the Beaufort family, all of the various individuals. There's also uh, uh, another Joan Beaufort who becomes uh, Queen Consort of Scotland as well. Oh, is that that's one... Oh, I was going to say one man, two governors. What is it? The one, Once a future queen or something? There's a there's an Alison Weir... <laughs> book about her is it alison weir oh quite possibly yeah yeah she does do a lot of fiction books either her or philippa gregory i imagine yeah one of those about her yeah so there's <laughs> a free plug for her <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, let us know what you thought about that and if you've got any uh, points or questions. If you'd like to get in touch, you can uh, find us on Twitter and Instagram where we are at Rex Fact Pod. Like 
the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And if you'd like to support us, you can leave a review, subscribe, whatever podcast provider you use, or donate monthly, become a Privy Council, and get access to lots of bonus content. Uh, just go to www.patreon.com forward slash rexfactor to sign up. And we have some Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Amber Haskett, Kitty Butterworth, Lisa Janik, Amy Berker, Sue Clark, Diana Bowler, Lindsay Butterworth, Megan Cherry, Amy Orchard, Frankie T, Jill Osmond, Ben from Battle Royale, Brianda Thal, Danica Hignall, Gregor Douglas Sinclair, Rachel Pierce, Lucy Hines, Michael, Solgan Tall, Lisa Gates, Jonathan Brooks, Joan Hargrove, Alexander, Joe Greer, and Eric Olson. Perfect. I counted them off. Uh, they're all present and correct. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Tick, tick, tick. Tick, 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 tick. You've all made the correct decision. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's all from us for today. As I said, you can follow Nathan uh, on uh, Twitter and various other places at Nathan Amen. Follow him. Follow Nathan Amen. That definitely. I'm looking forward to hearing that. That sounded like pollinate him. <laughs> if you'd like to try and pollinate Nathan Amen, then. Uh... <laughs> um, Otherwise, that's all uh, from us today. Uh, next time, we'll be hearing more about, uh, I suppose, the, the last Beaufort um, that we mentioned a bit in this podcast, of course, Margaret Beaufort, when we speak to her biographer, Nicola Tallis. Was she the one that I liked? Margaret Beaufort? Yeah. Uh, possibly. It's hard to know with you where the Margaret Beaufort and Margaret of Anjou identity <sighs> comes into play and which one is which at various times. Maybe you like both of them. There's a, that TV show, The Bastards. Because mm. they, it turns out, are both you and that tel- very, very influential on me TV show are <laughs> the basis of all of my knowledge on this, and you're not aware of the other. Yeah. So it's, there's some friction. I mean, they're, they're both strong sort of matriarchal figures. Mm. So maybe you like both. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, turns out. Well, anyway, I guess we'll find out next time. We'll speak to Nicola about Margaret Beaufort and see if uh, if you like her. Margaret, that is. <laughs> uh, but until then, it's goodbye for me. Cheerio.